When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some books feel like they contain the world. It's an epic, it's a tragedy, it's a comedy, it's a romance, it's a critique of political economy, it's a phenomenology of spirit, it's science fiction. Basically, any kind of madness that you could find is in there. My name is John Durham Peters. I was born in 1958 in the Rocky Mountains in Salt Lake City. I've lived in a lot of places. My average latitude is 42. I just figured that out. All the places I've lived, I teach English and media studies at Yale. At an emotional level, I adore this book. In 1990, Professor Peters took a trip to Britain. While he was there, he rode the train from London to Glasgow. And so I was going to um, Glasgow and I started reading Moby Dick on the train and was um, completely hooked. And I don't know why that time and place, but it just somehow seems appropriate, kind of off on an adventure in this strange means of transport in a strange place where I couldn't understand the uh, conductor's announcements. The farther north we got, the less intelligible the English was. By the time we were in Glasgow, I had no idea what the conductor was saying. Linguistically mysterious voyage into the unknown, I mean, that's, that's Moby Dick. Welcome to Writ Large a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor John Durham Peters to discuss Moby Dick. The book's narrator is a man named Ishmael. Ishmael is a sailor aboard a whaling ship called the Pequod, which is commanded by the crazed Captain Ahab. On a previous voyage, Ahab lost his leg to a great white whale named Moby Dick. This story is about Ahab's voyage to get revenge and kill that whale. It's, it's a book whose reputation precedes it and doesn't always do it justice. So you say Moby Dick, people say, oh, it's about the white whale, about trying to kill the white whale and the white whale comes back and kills you. It's not just about the white whale. The white whale hardly even shows up. I mean, it's a book about the universe. It's a book about what it is what it is to be alive. It's a book for everyone. I mean, there really is something. It's a book about democracy. It's a book about, about the United States. It's a book about gender. It's a book about race. It's a book about class. It's a book about the Pacific. It's a book about nature. And it's a book about, you know, environmentalism. And it's a book, you know, my own interest, it's a book about media, about technology, about devices, compasses, harpoons, lines, ropes, boats, ships. I mean, I, I could keep going, but basically I'm, I'm modeling the compendious style of Moby Dick in talking about it, because this is a book that just brims and overflows encyclopedically. Moby Dick was published in 1851. It was written by the American author Herman Melville, who was born in New York City in 1819. He was from a very distinguished family um, who had distinguished themselves in the Revolutionary War, New York family, Dutch on the mother's side, Calvinist. Both of Melville's grandfathers were heroes of the American Revolutionary War. 
His paternal grandfather took part in the Boston Tea Party, and his maternal grandfather was a colonel in the Continental Army. Melville attended high school and a few years of college at the Albany Academy in Albany, New York. When he was 20 years old, he took a job aboard a merchant ship sailing between New York City and Liverpool, England. Two years later, he joined a whaling ship out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. In Moby Dick, he says that, you know, the whaling ship was his Harvard and his Yale. You can see this education in the details. In between the plot are chapters filled with information about whales, whale ships, the history of whaling, and detailed descriptions of how the whale industry worked. So, I mean, a lot of the detail um, in Moby Dick is based upon rigorous technical knowledge, which he had. And that is something which people tend to get alarmed about or worried about. Is there just too much whaling, you know, too many knots, too much detail about whale skin and, you know, blubber and spermaceti. And there is a lot of that, but there's a sort of poetic, technical glorying in in the detail, which is very much a 19th century thing, which, which connects with Melville's idiosyncratic um, education. And I suspect that that overflowing nature is part of why many people mean to read this book, but never actually do. Could you could you maybe tell us a bit, what was Melville thinking? What, what was he trying to do? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, he was trying to write, write the great American novel, and he succeeded. And no one recognized it for 70 years. You know, Melville did kind of self-consciously see himself as trying to figure out, you know, what is the American idiom? This is, his period is commonly called the American Renaissance, a term invented by a literary scholar at at Harvard uh, 70 years ago, I believe. The scholar Francis Otto Matthiessen coined the term the American Renaissance to refer to an American literary movement that existed from the 1830s to the 1860s. It was a move toward humanism, recognizing the agency of human beings. Some key figures of this movement include Emily Dickinson, Margaret Fuller, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. They all lived in New England, as did Melville. When he wrote Moby Dick, he was recently married, living in western Massachusetts to be a gentleman farmer on a 640-acre estate you can still visit called, called Arrowhead. When Melville returned home from his years at sea, He told his family and friends of his adventures. They urged him to put his stories into writing. His first two novels were Typee and Omu. These books were well-received, and Melville quickly became a renowned author. Moby Dick was his sixth novel. I mean, it's got the most famous opening line in American literature that everybody knows. It actually is not the opening line to be technical, but call me Ishmael. And so we don't know if Ishmael is his name. But he's this dreamy wanderer who goes to sea in order, in order to fight depression, essentially. Once at sea, he meets Captain Ahab, and he learns of Ahab's plan to kill the white whale that took his leg. You know, one way to think about Moby Dick is that you have this kind of intellectual pack rat, genius, voracious reader who discovers Shakespeare and realizes that he could write something which is like an American Lear or an American uh, Macbeth. And it's kind of standard to see the monomaniacal, charismatic, deranged, maimed Captain Ahab as a kind of King Lear character who is, who's raging against nature. In Shakespeare's play King Lear, 
the king rages against the weather. In Moby Dick, Captain Ahab rages against the white whale. You know, these, uh, you know, capitalist, voracious, you know, regal sovereign types who want to sort of dominate nature and, um, you know, personify nature as this kind of vicious other who's going to push against you. So Lear raging against the storm, like a storm, and Ahab going after the whale. And many of, you know, his compadres will say, well, it's a dumb brute. I mean, why, why are you, why are you uh, projecting? But Ahab refuses to, you know, see nature as dumb. He sees nature as malevolent, as, as embodied. And this whole question about, you know, is nature alive? How, how should we treat it? Um, you know, what kind of intelligence does nature have? Is it a kind of Gaia? You know, I think these questions are very much raised within, within Moby Dick. In this story, Melville illustrates the dangers of following a man like Ahab. This is obviously a book about um, American uh, democracy, and it's a book about the danger of a really powerful leader. And basically, Ahab persuades all of the people on the ship to go in on this crazed adventure, not to be whalers to collect you know, sperm oil and you know, make money, but to try to kill the white whale. In the mid-20th century, Moby Dick it tends to be read as the great Cold War book, you know, in which Ahab is is like the Mussolini, the Hitler, the the Stalin, the one who can kind of magnetize um, um, his followers into um, going along on on a crazed adventure. And it turns out that you know right wing thinkers were very interested in, in Moby Dick. In the 1940s, Moby Dick was translated into Flemish by the literary theorist Paul de Man. He turned out to be a right-wing thinker himself. After Demond died in 1983, a researcher uncovered roughly 200 anti-Semitic articles Demond wrote during World War II. Captain Ahab possesses many of the same qualities as leaders like Hitler and Stalin. He leads a suicidal mission, and he convinces others to join him. Not only Ishmael, but a whole ship full of people. The crew on the Pequod came from many different backgrounds and were stuck on this ship for three long years. You know, the sitcom version is the elevator, you know, the broken elevator. You know, when public transportation breaks down, you have different people together and they have to figure out how to make it work. This is a familiar story for an American writer. The total number of people on board the Pequod is not exactly figured out because Melville's a little bit loose loose about this. Like there are people who have stowed away who only um, uh, appear late, but one count says they're 35. And if I'm not mistaken, in 1851, they're 35 states. And so, you know, he he wants the Pequod in some way to be an allegory of E Pluribus Unum. E Pluribus Unum. Out of many, one. The motto of the United States. So there's all this, all these questions about uh, democracy and, you know, equality, difference, race that are, that that play out on the uh, Pequod. Because they're on the neutral high seas and not in any one country, no one culture reigns supreme. There's a great chapter early on, uh, the wheelbarrow, um, in which it's basically um, a comparison of of how absurd you know, royal royal culture is versus how absurd, supposedly, uh, headhunter culture is. And the idea is that, you know, royal Brit or British aristocrats are just as silly in their rituals as a, as a supposed cannibal 
could be. So, I mean, that's radical cultural pluralism way before it became fashionable in terms of um, anthropology. In addition to cultural pluralism, Melville also explores religious pluralism. Early in the book, there is a scene in which we learn that Queequeg worships a small god named Yojo. Queequeg tells Ishmael that Yojo wants Ishmael to pick the whaling ship they will join. Ishmael decides to also worship Yojo and agrees to find the ship. And that's how they end up on the Pequod. This is a a radical flattening of religious differences and, and a celebration of the idea that I mean, there's a little bit of noble savage stuff going on here, but um, a celebration of the idea that and the other's religion can be just as noble and ennobling as, um, as your own. This is a cultural critique. No one religious practice is better than the others. But there's a larger critique here as well. I think it's a mistake to reduce the uh, book to a kind of social, social and political and cultural uh, critique. It certainly is that. But if you're not thinking metaphysically, philosophically, and theologically, you're going to miss it. The book is clearly anti-theologically ambitious. And the idea that, that the whale is sort of like, you know, the great white other, the, you know, the, the omna, you know, the omnis, you know, the whale is everywhere at once. It's, it's omnipresent. It's all-powerful. It's all-knowing. I mean, it is clearly a kind of parody of a kind of you know, overpowering, you know, awful kind of um, deity. If if the world is, is ideally constituted, what if the idealist that's dreaming us up is malevolent <laughs> or doesn't exist or is messing with us all the time? Or seemingly ambivalent, right? The whale doesn't care about us. <laughs> right, yes, yes. Amid the chaos, madness, and danger, there is romance. Early on, Ishmael and Queequeg form an unlikely intimate relationship. Queequeg is a tattooed native islander from the South Pacific Ocean, and Ishmael is an American sailor. They are forced to be roommates in a hotel in New Bedford, Massachusetts. They become close, and at one point Ishmael describes his melting heart in the presence of Queequeg. But, I mean, yeah, there's a lot about love. I mean, there's so many tender moments in here. It isn't just, it's a very violent book for sure, but it's a very tender Uh, book as well. Some of these tender moments happen on the whale ship, and they are illustrated like so much in Moby Dick through the details of the whaling process. In chapter 94, the crew is processing a sperm whale they have killed. They squeeze out the spermaceti, or sperm, a waxy, oily substance found in the sperm whale's head. At room temperature, the spermaceti congeals into lumps. The sailors squeeze the lumps to make the spermaceti liquid. You know, squeezing, squeezing the sperm is a kind of classic chapter, which is, I think, the greatest kind of um, vision of fraternity in American letters, where you're squeezing these lumps in the sperm, which comes out of whales, and it's both milky and sperm at the same time. And so you've got kind of both genders, and and they end up squeezing each other's hands, and they squeeze, and it's kind of this... I mean, you, you can read it as very outré um, erotically, but I mean, I really love the 19th century because their eros is so much better because they don't tell you about acts and organs. They just um, let it be poetic and, and uh, sublime. And you, I mean, you can read it about, about community as I do, and it, you don't need to kind of degrade it by turning it into medicalized functions. Thank heavens. 
What what is the purpose of all that whale science and knowledge? I mean, this is a book that wants to contain the world and the kitchen sink. And when you start reading those extracts, you wonder how did he do this without a, you know an, <laughs> an internet service provider? I mean, <laughs> he swam through libraries. It is his is his famous line and collected bits and pieces about whales. And they're just you know it's chronologically ordered all these little quotes about whales and it, it's kind of glorious um, in a time in which you know the average American home in the early 19th century had a Bible and a dictionary and maybe you know a couple other books like Abraham Lincoln had a Bible and a dictionary and you know the Columbian orator and maybe some Cicero I mean, I mean books were scarce and so the, the idea that you could compile all books into one great book, I mean, Melville's doing us a, a service <laughs> to extract. And, uh, you know, he's kind of a Google, proto-Google. It's not just whale facts. There's a lot about knots, ships, technology, and human power in relationship to nature. You know, it's a very technical book. It's a very technological book. I mean, what happens in Moby Dick is that um, Ishmael abandons everything. It's a book of renunciation. I mean, he goes to sea, and he's on this very fragile craft. You know, he's suspended, he's afloat by technology. The story can also be read as an allegory about capitalism. You know, the work of whaling is such a great allegory of capitalism because it's so brutal. It's so extractive. It's, it's killing and stripping and boiling and, you know, the sort of process of extracting oil out of this natural resource is also incredibly um, resonant. I mean, obviously, modernity is run by oil, and Moby Dick's also prophetic that way, because this is a book about the depredation and awfulness and sublimity that comes out of using naturally produced Com- a compressed energy. I mean, it isn't fossil fuel, but it, it's bi- a biofuel from a living creature. Not a dead one from millions of years ago, but a live one you just killed and slaughtered. What do we know about how it was received? I mean, my basic understanding is people didn't know what to make of it. and It wasn't very popular at the time. Well, um, there are about 3,000 copies sold in Melville's life, um, which means from, I think he died in 91... So it's published in 51. So 40 years, 3,000 copies sold. Not a huge amount of sales. The British reception, I mean, of course, England was the center of, of the world's culture and uh, economy in the 19th century, was butchered by, by the poor publishing and also by the um, censorship. Because Melville's got a lot of jokes about Royals in here. He's got a he's got a bunch of sex jokes and he's got a bunch of religious jokes and it is very funny. There's slapstick, you know. There's there's rude humor. There's a fart joke in chapter one. How it's better to be before the mast where all the grunts are because the wind goes backwards and if you're eating beans. And anyway, it's you know. <laughs> there were some positive reviews at the time, including from Nathaniel Hawthorne and Everett Dykink two important literary figures and close friends of Melville's. But it took most readers almost 70 years to appreciate Moby Dick. Today, it is considered one of the most important works in literature. That was in part due to the efforts of several American critics who brought Melville's works to center stage in the early 20th century. 
it's really a so-called Melville revival, you know, it's, which is typically dated 1919 for convenience. His 100th year anniversary is born in 1819, which a, a bunch of American critics, Lewis Mumford, Waldo Frank, you know, recognize that this is really um, an amazing book. Growing up, this was one of the great books. This is, you know, if there's a classic book, this is this is it. Um, could you talk for a bit about the the quest for the great American novel and and maybe why this should be considered the the one if you believe that? Yeah, totally. I'm nervous of superlatives, um, in part because I don't know that anybody can ever really have the kind of omniscient overview of of American literature. I mean, who knows what Moby Dick is being written this year that is going to languish for 70 years. You know, and maybe there are some some books that were written in the 19th century we don't know about. On the other hand, if you have to ask me for what I think the greatest book in American letters is, I'd, I'm going to say Moby Dick. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess to paint a single picture of its impact is difficult because now it's read by millions of people around the world, but, you know, Americans in particular. And they're coming away with it, as we've discussed, with many different meanings and and kind of many different resonances. And, you know, if anything, it's its impact seems to be just the beautiful power of, of, of prose, the way that words can take over you. And that literature can take you on these journeys. Uh, I mean, it's a testament to art. It's a, it's a witness of art. Um, and it continues, I think, to, to captivate people, not just for its plot, but for everything in between. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's a hard book to figure out single impact because, like you say, it is so diffuse and so, so spread out. And and the book is designed to be diffused and diffused and spread out because, you know, I mean, one of its central questions is interpretation or meaning. Can you find meaning? And it kind of throws so many different p- potential answers at you. You know, what is the meaning of the universe? There is no meaning. You know, the universe is angry at you. The universe is indifferent. The universe is is secret. And in order to learn how to read Moby Dick you learn how to read the enigmatic quality of life. And so, I mean, that's why I think that Moby Dick is such a solace and such a kind of therapy because it teaches you to deal with the fact that that I'm going to die. Facing death is a part of life at sea. In chapter 49, Ishmael talks about how sailors are always tinkering with their last will and testament because life at sea is so precarious. This was the fourth time in my nautical life that I had done the same thing. After the ceremony was concluded upon the present occasion, I felt all the easier. A stone was rolled away from my heart. Besides, all the days I should now live would be as good as the days that Lazarus lived after his resurrection, a supplementary clean gain of so many months or weeks as the case might be. I survived myself. My death and burial were locked up in my chest. I looked around me tranquilly and contentedly, like a quiet ghost with a clean conscience, sitting inside the bars of a snug family vault. This was meaningful to me when I um, had a heart attack uh, almost four years ago, which scared scared me to death because I'd been healthy and all this kind of stuff. The fact is, 
you know, it's all gravy. You know, I've died and I'm and I'm still here. So, you know, I've got this early onset post mortality. I survived myself. And that's something that Moby Dick teaches you to do. You're going to die. So let's face it down, people. Go to the sea, face it down, and then learn to live, live beyond. Today, Moby Dick is considered one of the greatest novels in American literature. Historian Nathaniel Philbrick calls it the American Bible. And it makes sense that it would be so widely celebrated. Moby Dick truly has something for everyone. And it gives us a philosophy for persevering in the face of danger and accepting hard realities in death, but also in life. I think Moby Dick gives you instructions on how not to lose it. You know, how not to flip out um, under really incredibly stressful situations. If you want a stressful situation, it's being stuck on a really small boat with a bunch of smelly guys with really dangerous weapons and, and sharks and whales and a a crazy captain who doesn't really care about your ultimate welfare. I mean, it's just such a ripe allegory for the situation of a lot of people whose lives are, um, are precarious. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.